Turb Alper, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Testuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a, is now, I believe, could be considered a longtime contributor to Fangraphs. He's also um, a, a perpetually a, uh, a PhD candidate at a college at, uh, somewhere in Canada that's not very far from Toronto, but is also not Toronto. His name is Matt Clausen, and he's helping me with the introduction. You're there, Matt? Yes, I am. Hi, Carson. Hi, hi, Matt Clausen. We uh, we just had a, quite a long conversation. Um, we we covered some important things, and then also you wasted uh, maybe upwards of ten minutes on uh, discussing the distinction between analytical and continental philosophy. Is that true? Indeed. Uh, and uh, any uh, any recollection of what else we discussed? Uh, we talked about the disappointment in the new rest of development. But it we was talked- a disappointment you you. New was new was yeah yeah and trying to I try to gauge whether the disappointment met my expectations I I knew the show wouldn't meet my hopes for it but whether the disappointment in the show <laughs> was greater or lesser than my expectations okay uh, we didn't talk about that conference that you're interested in because we talked about aesthetics before maybe a little bit uh, we talked about uh, the distinction of analytic and continental philosophy for some reason that's my fault we talked about sexy book titles oh yeah we did talk about it. that was right at the beginning so people listening right now. That's basically the first thing they're going to hear. We also talked about um, uh, we talked. I, I I invoked the name Marx. I just said Marx aloud, and I said, "Does that does that apply to fandom at all?" Yeah, we talked about Rick Wilmus and Chesterton. Right. Okay. Uh, there it is. So this is uh, this is what this is is an introduction. Uh, what's about to uh, what's about what 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 listeners people listening to my voice right now? What you're about to hear is my conversation that I've just completed in my present with Matt Clausen as uh, the sirens go by again. My dangerous, dangerous neighborhood. Uh, and it's a, it's an, it's an episode of Fangraphs Audio. It features um, longtime Fangraphs contributor Matt Clausen, and it begins right now. Great. We're talking to each other officially. I, I know. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't realize uh, y'all were having supper. We could have scheduled this for a, a different time. No, that's fine. We we scheduled it with the idea that we would that I would be doing that. It's okay, Matt Clausen. <laughs> but I understand. But it's that's uh, very sweet of you to recognize the importance of family time. Uh, why wouldn't I? Well, you're a family man. I know that. Reluctant. Well, no, no. Ex- um, wait. That's not what Happily. I mean. Happily, but but um, unexpectedly at some level, right? Uh, in terms of my whole life plan, it wasn't like uh, yeah, a little surprise, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but, but besides, you know, I know when I'm talking to Italian and he says I'm having dinner with the family, uh, you know, I don't want to mess with that. Yeah, well, that's that could be a euphemism for any number of things as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assume there was some sort of uh, you guys ever have that uh, whatever it is the the noodles with the black milk or whatever? Or is that just something people have in dreams or something from a Salan poem? Are you um are you thinking of like the like uh, like squid or something? Squid squid ink? Uh that's not what I was thinking of, but do they actually use that in food? Um I've seen it before. Yeah, I don't know necessarily what the taste um what sort of what the uh taste profile is. <laughs> but um I do know that uh I do know that it's used in so, in some cases. But I think that um I think one difficulty with it I believe I'm talking about squid ink. It could be octopus ink. Same, maybe the same thing. Maybe one of them has the ink. One of them, one of them doesn't. But um, it stains your teeth uh, dreadfully. It stains your teeth dreadfully. Yeah. Yeah. 
It really is a, like a real, like a legitimately inky thing. It 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 could be a problem. And if you spill it on like your skin, it'll be there for for days or whatever. Yeah, that seems like a bad idea then to use that in food. Yeah, I don't know, what, but I think it's also prestigious in some way. To have um, those stains, or to eat, or just to eat it. To to ha- yeah, to have it. I don't know. Maybe it's hard to, maybe it's hard to to um, collect it or gather it or whatever. So therefore, there's like some prestige to it. But I don't think that it's necessarily good for. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I bet it's not bad for you. I, and I, and I, but I honestly, I don't know what it tastes like either. Um. Anyway, yeah. so that's 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 all of the information I have about <laughs> squidding. As well, I think it's culinary. I think it's important for the listeners to get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is all the information um, that I have about that thing. So we've uh, we've that well is dried up. <laughs> that um, inky inky well. Yeah. So um, so uh, Matt, when I when I got in touch with you, um, <clears throat> and uh, we were corresponding briefly about what what we would talk about, I said uh, because you had mentioned that you'd just been to an aesthetics conference. Um, yeah. And I and I said, oh, I would love to talk about that. And then you said. Um, you said baseball. What you said, but baseball though too, right? And then maybe you said it in another email too. Like you, you were a little bit worried that we were not going to talk about baseball, and I think that you have some concerns about that. That we maybe dwell when we talk on Fangraphs Saudi that we dwell um, uh, we dwell too long on your phil- philosophical exploits. Well, definitely my philosophical exploits, and you know, I'm it's it's an ego thing. I know no one wants to listen to me talk about baseball. <laughs> uh, or write, or be right about it. But you know, I'm sort of a legacy at Fangraphs. You yeah. know, with RJ and now Jack gone. You know, there's, I, you know, there's not many people left. You know, I don't really have any discernible skills. I make lists and uh, desperately wait for uh, obscure players to announce their retirement a year and a half after anyone would have cared. Um, and that doesn't happen all the time. But you know, it's just, I assume that you started this podcast simply for the sake of stroking my ego once a year. Uh, no, I like to talk with you, Matt Clausen. I especially like to talk with you. I was thinking of employing, and might still do so, in what is called uh, post-production. Clausen, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, post-production. That is, if you consider this the production, it would be what's after this. Right. Well, I thought it was what you tried to get from, like, your power forward or center. But that's all I know about basketball. Yeah, there you go. Um, we've exhausted your knowledge of basketball. We can put that into the finished pile along with uh, any comments we might uh, uh, have to make about um, squid and squid. Well, and, and, I, and I assume in post-production that means you're going to add a lot of uh, delay to this so we get a nice echo. Yeah, well, that and a lot of a lot of uh, canned canned laughter. Right. Yeah. Which was on uh, – were you ever a Sports Night fan, Matt Clausen? I saw a few episodes of it. So here's the thing, and, and I know that – well, you're you're – well, I'm putting Sports Night. Wait, I'm putting Sports Night down. You had mentioned Arrested Development. I know that that's a thing. I know that you also hate comedians sometimes. You know, I'm coming around. I think I've just it's a it's a dogmatic thing that I've held on to. Yeah. I'm not sure if I if I really do. And I you know I'm willing to give him a chance for the for your sake, and for li, for little Jackie's sake. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Well, Jackie, yeah, Jackie likes comedians quite a bit. So wait, wait, what are we talking about though? Sports Night. Oh yeah, so Sports Night was a show. That had uh, that's I think it's what it, it might be Aaron Sorkin's first show. I could also be um, telling tales out of school by saying so. Yeah, but, I'm not a sports night fanatic. I mean, I saw two or three episodes of it, you know, years and years ago. So. Right, right. Well, let me give you um, a, a haphazard summary of it, a poorly informed summary of it. I've seen, I think, every episode, but I don't necessarily know all the details. 
from my understanding, though, is that it was originally on network television of some sorts. And because it was on network television, like many other comedies on network television, it was provided with a laugh track. But you might know just from even watching one episode that it is not necessarily a show that would work well with a laugh track. And so no, I believe it's – mostly point, because it wasn't funny. Oh, interesting point. Not one <laughs> that I agree with, but interesting point. Yeah. I may um, not remember it well, yeah. But there is a um, – but it, regardless, though, even if you don't, even even if you could tell where the laughs are supposed to come, it's not necessarily a show that worked well with the laugh track. Yeah, it would have been a bad idea, from what I remember. I shouldn't say it wasn't funny. I just don't remember laughing. Right. Well, it's not to say it was not necessarily an uh, an LOL type of program. Right. Right. It was more of uh, I think uh, I believe Aaron Sorkin's aesthetic is referred to as walking and talking. Uh-huh. There are a lot of people doing both uh, throughout his shows. There was a lot of that. There's a lot of uh, witty banter, which is – I do remember – sorry. Which is a thing that happens in a number of shows, but this is a particular sort of so, – uh, rapid-fire um, snaps going back and forth. Yeah. So that's – I'm done. Now you say your thing. Well, I, I don't have – no. I mean I, I, I didn't have anything to say. I wonder where you're going with the whole sports night thing. And laugh I was track. saying that. Are you going to put a laugh track in this? Yes, that's is right. Is that what you were going with? Yeah, it? that's right. That's why I was going to. Say, that's why I was mentioning it. This is something that would. I don't think a laugh track would work well. Um, partially, um, partially for a reason you mentioned with regard to sports night. At least your opinion of it is that um, it won't be funny. There, there are very few comic moments in it. But um, also, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't generally work. But I, 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 it was interesting to me that this idea of like the addition of a of a laugh track, and I guess that, right like the idea of a laugh track, the effect that it has on the spectator, on the the home audience, is, uh, I mean, it's, I assume it's like a subliminal influence, right? Where you say, oh, people, someone's laughing at it. Is that that's the idea? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I it's 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 embarrassing to say I've never thought about it. I mean, I thought about, wow, it's stupid to have one or. Wow, this show would be even more unbearable without it. Like I think, wasn't there a, a couple of years ago somebody had a had taken the chunks of a Big Bang Theory without the laugh track, laugh track and put it online? Okay, yeah, and, it's, it's, yeah. And it was hilarious how awful it was. Uh, I mean, it's already bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and you know, you know who used to have a real thing about hating Big Bang Theory a year or two ago? Um, Keith Law. Close, Rob Nyer. <laughs> it seemed like a year or two ago. You should ask. You should ask your buddy Rob about this. About my friend, my good friend Rob Nyer. Yeah, yeah. maybe you've heard of him. Yeah, audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just. Th- I mean, I agree. The show is silly. You know, women like that show, or empirically, in my very limited experience. With okay, women, wait, so, so this is an house. empirical test, but it's also a very limited sample, isn't right? It? It's very. Women like it. I have a theory on that. But how many women like it from your from your empirical study? Uh, three. Three. Okay. Women. One hundred percent of the one I've ones I've talked to about it. Okay. Uh, so now, yeah. Have you but talked, hey, to, have you talked to Russell terrible. Carlton? Have you talked to Russell Carlton about when that the sample sizes become reliable? Women liking. No. But you know, Carol Gilligan became very influential writing books based on sample sizes of eight. Well, she's like. Who's Carol Gilligan? Can you can you just give a brief? Carol Gilligan. Well, I it was a later book that we're thinking she used a sample size of eight, I think. But she wrote. Uh, oh man, I wish I could remember. I'm gonna get it wrong. Uh, she's a famous uh, sort of uh, feminist psychologist. 
Uh, and I'm not uh, I'm stating that as a fact, to the best of my knowledge. Her, her in a different voice was her classic work, uh, 1982. Mm-hmm. Uh, or she just talked about. Uh, uh, well, she's a, she's a ethicist and psychologist, and she builds on and goes tries to go beyond uh, Lawrence Colbert on uh, sort of the psychology of moral, moral development. And I think in one of her later studies, the sample size was you know based on how girls are different than boys, blah blah. blah. I think it turned out it was based on you know extensive interviews with eight girls. Um, I'm not going to pass judgment on that. I'm not a so, pseudo a social scientist, so uh, it seems uh, small though. It does. It seems a bit small. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just put it that way. It seems so we should have. To... It seems small, but yet, it, yet it's over twice as large as the sample from which you've drawn. Um, right. In coming to the conclusion that women like Big Bang Theory. Well, right. Yeah, it's, that's true. <laughs> and yet, I'm not. And yet, where is my big Jane Fonda funded institute? Um, I don't. Where is it? I don't know. Is it in your tiny I... Canadian hamlet, or is oh. it non non extant? Carol Gilligan got one. I mean, she's, uh, I don't remember, but, uh, she got, uh, you know, Jane Fonda, the former. I know. Kid, yeah, I know. It gave a lot of money to something, to program she's running. I'm not asking for that much, but if my sample size is like three eighths as big as Carol Gilligan's. You think you get three eighths of money? I would settle for three twentieths. Yeah, it may not be a linear relationship. No. Yeah. Um, what, so, so let's say, here's an interesting thing, right? I think that if you're writing a, there's certain things within academia that might be. So I just want to get in here before somebody gets mad. I'm not, you know, passing judgment on Carol Gilligan's work, and I may be mis. I may be, uh, to use a word baseball fans will be familiar with misremembering mm-hmm. uh, something. I did not. Some, somebody telling me about the study and the sample size. So I apologize to uh, Professor Gilligan and any of anybody who might think I'm deliberately doing something there. That was just what I understood. Right. I mean, I think we could take for granted that it's likely that you've characterized it incorrectly. Yes. Okay, we'll take that for granted. Yes. Okay, very good. Um, what I want to say is, oh, yeah. Now, in academia, um, so we know that in the, in the world of uh, interneting, interneting, um, right. there are certain uh, posts you can do, not not the ones that you do. There are certain posts you can you can you can do them in baseball baseball interneting um, that will attract a. Uh, attract a lot of page views, right? Um, you know, it, there there could be some cynicism behind these. But for example, if you say, uh, I think if you employ the superlative uh, at any point in the title of your post, if you say the best, like the best team right now, the best player right now, right? Um, this could be something that attracts page views. If you have something that's like top 10 or, you know, like uh, the sort of um, the BuzzFeed model, right? Like 12 whatever's. Yeah. Um, or you know, the, or the slideshow. A slideshow, regardless of the, of the merit of the content. Let's. We're not commenting on that. I'm just saying that there are things that will draw eyes. Yeah. Um, it sounds to me. To me, what you're saying is, and again, you're you're totally misunderstanding. We've we've established this. You're totally mis, uh, uh, misunderstanding Gilligan's work. But it sounds like what you're saying. We don't have to talk about Gilligan specifically. Is um, there are certain things within academia that um, receive the equivalent of page views, right? Or everything receives the equivalent of page views. What are the things – if you were going to write a paper, uh, Clausen, uh, if you were going to write an academic paper or maybe a, a crossover paper, right, that it had popular appeal as well, what, what would be the topic on, on which you would write um, 
to to get the equivalent of of big page views? What would be the equivalent of a slideshow of uh, hottest uh, female athletes? <laughs> well, yeah, you've, you've, you've well, you've you've sort of conflated two things. There's the, the actual topic, and then there's the way you title the topic. Okay, right. I mean, you know, so for titles, I don't know. Uh, You're not good at that. I know that. I, I'm aware. I I think my titles are pretty clever. I try to be a little <laughs> bit different. Uh, you know, I, I I try not to do something too generic. Uh, I try to avoid alliteration. In a, no, that's not true. I I sometimes use alliteration, but I you usually just did that. You just did yeah, hit by what was like pain, pain profiteers, pain which profiteers. I thought was a pretty good, which I thought was a pretty good title for me. Yes, for you, right? But I try not to be spectacular. I try to be austere, and, and maybe that's uh, what explain. But explain, but explain my fortunes. I noticed that sports on earth and the classical are not beating my door down yet. Right. Uh, um, yet. Yet. Uh, Emphasis on the yet. But um, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think I, I I praise you for your austerity and your restraint. Well, what am I supposed to say? Yeah. I mean, well, right, I mean, but, he, but let, let's get to the let's get to the, to the my in my cutting question. Yeah, my bold question. Let's let's get to that, Clausen. Yeah, I topics in academia. Well, that depends on the fads and it depends on the field. Um, I've, uh, you know, I don't know if I was gonna. It depends on on it has to be something you know about. Uh, in academia, it's a little bit different. I think it's where you publish. Okay. Uh, in terms of talking about articles and books, mm-hmm. uh, as much as the title, now that may not be true. Um, you know, my advisor, I think, has pretty good book titles. His, uh, two, he has a sort of a two volume work. Uh, well, it's two separate books that they're sort of in a, one apology. The first one's called Artistic Truth. And I think that's a, sounds a little austere, but it's, uh, it's bold too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Wow. Make a claim about truth and art. And the, uh, his most recent, uh, academic book is called Art in Public. Originally it was going to be called Art Matters, but that had already been taken. Oh, and I think art, he likes art. this one. He likes this one better. Yeah. I've actually, you know, actually, uh, I, uh, I know you know, listeners have been waiting for this for a while. I actually have a, a collection I edited with a few other people that's coming out, uh, later this year. Oh. Uh, from a conference we put on called, uh, Truth Matters. And I think that title has been used before, but, uh, you know, it's sort of multiple levels of meaning, you know, so it's super, super clever. But, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's bold and it's, it, uh, gives you a sense of sort of what's, what it's, you know, generally what it's about and it stands out. But there are other, uh, Clever titles. I think, uh, you know, if you want, to, it depends. You know, in academia sometimes you need to put, you need to put, if it's on a figure or a series of figures, you need to put that. If it's a big figure, you need to put it in there. Put the put the person's name in there. Yeah, because unfortunately, in certain areas of philosophy, especially scholarship, uh, it's hard not to. I don't want to make this sound overly judgmental. Scholarship is tend to take priority over original work. So. Uh, do you, you know like the depth of the depth of research? Well, I mean that uh, especially you're almost writing about people more than you're writing systematic philosophy. Now those go hand in hand. And people do both. Uh, that's the way I tend to do things. But it's almost as if writing about someone else's work is going to get presses more excited than your own original stuff. Oh, okay. saying, okay, yeah. of, so uh, and that's frustrating. But you know so. And it depends on who's hot. So for a while, the guy I did my master's thesis on, uh, Taylor Adorno, uh, he finally got, you know, you know, 
30 something years after he died and the, partly because it was the centenary of his birth 2003 he finally started getting big he blew in, up in, in anglophone well, not a little bit in, in anglophone philosophy and so putting adorno in the title work you know and right. somebody, you know, Heidegger, okay, so, so what if you said uh like if you're going to do a title about theodore adorno like would you say a better adorno than a window uh, no. <laughs> no, not ever. No. But you know, there's there's you know, colons are really big in academia. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh boy, that's a good one. Yeah, that's uh, that's it's hilarious. A, yeah. But but, but you know, a guy studied with he has a good. I thought it was clever, but I don't know if it's called all or nothing. It's okay, yeah, that's that's, that's also that's it's also vague though, because if you're going bold, it's vague. If yeah. you're going bold, then sometimes you risk vagueness. Perhaps it sounds like. But of course, what held on that was it on Harvard University Press, right? Yeah, that sounds decent. That that's sounds a big like deal. A press. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal in academia. What pressure on? Because that's how much marketing you get, mm-hmm. and who's going to review the book, mm-hmm. and uh, then who's going to be on the panels at the conferences about it. Academia is a weird thing. Uh, well, can, then, can I interject? Uh, let me. This is my podcast, Matt Clausen. Can I say? Yeah. Can I say one thing? Yeah. Okay. Um, I know that uh, it seems to me that um, having some knowledge of um, having some knowledge of identity politics. I, I don't know if it's like in 2013 if that's a good thing to have, but I know that in the last uh, five to ten years, I, so you hear the police car going by in the back. This is I live in the hood. There's, there's violence going on outside my house right now. That's awesome. Yeah, it's getting taken care of. Don't worry. This is this is real hipster Carson Stooley, ladies. This is no, this is, not, this is uh, poverty. I live in a poor area. No, the uh, poverty at work. Oh, poverty at work. That could be a good title. Do you get it? Yeah, I'm, it? Sure, I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe, Never mind. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but but so if you have some notion of identity politics, like you know, for example, uh, my wife is in a French PhD program in yep. uh, francophone studies. Um, mm-hmm. And, and having some sort of expertise in francophone studies is important to to getting a job, for example, or to getting published. <laughs> if you can, if you can if you have some expertise in francophone studies, uh, especially African literature, this is much more likely to get you a job than if you're just like an expert in you know 16th century French literature. Right. So that's this is an example I'm looking for. Is there is there is there an equivalent to that? Like uh, I mean, if you know a lot about Adorno now, if you're an expert, if you have expertise in Adorno, will that get you a job at a university? No. Oh. I mean, well, it, that's because of the peculiar uh, setup of America. I mean, if they're looking for somebody who's – rarely will you see somebody looking for – that's because of the particular structure of North American philosophy, uh, the peculiarities of how – what is desirable institutionally, mm-hmm. what people are educated for. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily going to hurt you, but they – because of its setup, the sort of weird division – Sort of talking about scholarship and original and doing your own original stuff and systematic work or historical and systematic, the weird division between sort of uh, how that works itself out in the institutions of American philosophy. There's a big divide in Anglophone philosophy generally between so-called analytic and continental philosophy. It's not an exhaustive distinction. To analytic philosophy, which is better called Anglo-American philosophy, uh, if you're going to contrast it with so-called continental philosophy, which sort of uh, historically well, it, it, it has a certain, it's become a certain style, uh, which emphasizes uh, in a different way. Not that not these are clear distinctions when you think about them. But historically, derives from uh, not completely logical positivism, but sort of that sort of thing, and emphasizes questions about knowledge and traditional ontolo- and uh, ontology that are addressed very much around uh, uh, 
those sorts of questions coming out of Frege and Russell about logic and philosophy of language, uh, the logic of science. Uh, but then, you know, then of course it tries some, you know, it's very diverse in it. Then there's sort of continental philosophy, which, uh, like, I guess you could trace all the way back to Hegel, but analytic philosophy in one way originates from a reaction of Bertrand Russell and G. Moore against British Hegelianism too. And then turning, of course, to sort of somewhat interestingly, uh, German models of neocontinents like Frege, who was a mathematician or philosopher of mathematics. Uh, anyway, so that worked itself out, and the stereotype is that analytic philosophy would be very precise. Um, and uh, again, this is a stereotype, ahistorical. Whereas kind of philosophy is very traditional, uh, so you go from Hegel, and then you get uh, you know people like uh, Husserl and Heidegger, sort of phenomenology, sort of. So it's called continental philosophy because of the continent, so German and French philosophy in the 20th century. And so in American philosophy, so in North America, you'll get this weird division where you'll have specialists in continental philosophy, even though they're addressing the same issues, uh, but based in a different way, based on a certain historical figure. So it's this weird interlacing. I mean, or usually you have sort of have people, you think of people working on sort of historical eras in philosophy, so specialists say early modern or medieval or ancient philosophy, and then you'd have sort of your people supposedly working contemporary issues like theory of knowledge or metaphysics or aesthetics. Then you get this weird division where they're sort of continentalists, but are they seen, and that's who are marginalized from the academy. Um, that's sort of the tradition I work from, but I sort of try to do both. Anyway, but are they... Uh, but are they doing systematic work, or are they considered sort of historians of contemporary philosophy? And that's a very crude picture I've drawn. And since I've sort of been working on this stuff off and on as a side thing, I know that it's sort of adequate. More than uh, crude, it's it's revolting. <laughs> that's right. Well, <laughs> well, why am I talking about this? Because uh, because what will attract people depends on your audience, right? Yeah. Uh, and so a crossover thing, like I can. Analytic philosophy is hard to make popular because it's so technical. Uh, but of course, continental philosophy can be technical too. Uh, it can seem more concrete because of the sort of existentialist stuff, right? So people think of philosophy. I would say when lay people think of philosophy, they don't, they don't think about questions about, uh, the relationship between logic and mathematics, <laughs> right? Not typically, uh, no. I mean, uh, they, they think about the meaning of life kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. Yeah. Why am I here? I think that's, so that is obviously has significance, and I think you could make uh, – I would submit you could make an argument that at a certain point that f- philosophy has um, – uh, I mean this is generalizing, but philosophy has made itself at times irrelevant because it, you know, for, for uh, thousands of years it was, it, it was regarded as a way of – or was used as a way uh, to help one – um, contend with uh, life's difficulties, mm-hmm. and it's not that anymore. No, well, to certain, yeah. I, well, part of that I think is the growth of the uh, modern academy and in uh, so-called modern industrialized societies, right? And that's the absorption of so we may have talked about for intellectual life by academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even fifty years ago, well, well fifty years ago, you know. Uh, maybe 60 or 70 years ago, you had people like John Dewey, even, who were fairly popular and give talks in, in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's hard to... Ma- famous for his decimal system, John Dewey. <laughs> right. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, uh, 940 history, I think. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. I, I, every time I get... But, you know, uh, 
but that, but that's academia in general. Uh, it's, uh, it, can you imagine, uh, it's, a uh, one of my favorite writers, Russell Jacoby, uh, the history, intellectual historian's written a lot about this. Uh, we'll talk about it. Can you imagine, you know, Professor Kafka, Professor Sartre? Yeah. Uh, that's mind blowing. You know, that seems what Professor Nietzsche, although he was, of course, a professor for a little while, uh, till he got. Right, but you think of him more, uh, Punching horses, or not punching horses, grieving over embrace, horses. embrace, embracing horses, yes, embracing recently punched horses. Yeah, that's hard to imagine now. Uh, yeah, but now it's not just it's not just philosophers and 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 sort of popular writers. Uh, it's everything, you know, poets, uh, painters, a lot of you know famous composers. Right. Uh, They're been have, absorbed into the academy. But to make a living, they have to do it. Uh, sure, you know, right. Anthony Braxton, I, who I argues. Right, also known as Tony Braxton and right. a terrific R&B songstress. Yes, uh, he has a uh, same person, but in his form as a, I would call a, well, he, he likes to use the word uh, great African music, but uh, <laughs> no, I think, well, because he doesn't want to be reined in by the word jazz, right? No, I understand. Certain yeah. expectations. Uh, he's been at Wesleyan College for almost 30 years, I think, and hey, he gets health benefits for his family and stuff. So right. so that's why philosophy, and philosophy, you know, American philosophy, I think in particular, is in a bad state that way because of its technicality and triviality, and there's different historical reasons for that. So talking about crossover stuff, I don't know. I see all these books, and I, I confess I haven't read, you know, like The Simpsons in Philosophy or House in Philosophy or whatever. I'm right, sure right, right. about every TV show. That may be a way of doing it. I haven't looked at those. Harry Potter was really big. I know people who published in those. I don't know if anybody's reading those. You know, they... Uh, you're not going to believe this, but everyone tends to when they, somebody finds a book they like, they tend to find whatever philosophy they like confirmed in it. Uh, I'm sure, that's the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, you're using irony right now when you just said that. Yeah, that's where you put in the laugh. Yeah, this. <laughs> um, uh, oh yeah, so so right. The uh, so your point is that you so you've taken um, a considerable Let's... amount of time not to give me an answer, but you've give, you've established. Uh, you've established at least some of the parameters. Of, <laughs> you've, you've established some of the foundation on which you philosophy, would base an ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> on which you would base an answer. Like if uh, I well, can, I just put like a. What if I had titled a book called Sexual Philosophy? Can I sell that book? Yeah. Philosophy of Sexy Time. That would be awesome. Yeah. 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 How about Philosophy of Intimacy with the Ladies? That would be tremendous. Okay, that would sell. If you put what's his name, Alan Tudyk. Alan Tunick? Tudyk, the guy who played uh, past Reverend Veal on Arrested Development. Oh, okay. Oh, you're making it. Well, let's let's. You sounded like him. They say with the ladies. It sounded exactly like. Let's something. make that. Let Let's make your most recent comment. Uh, let's make that a clever segue. You want to make yep. that a clever segue? Sure. Okay. Uh, you've seen, I believe, four episodes of the most uh, of the new newly released Arrested uh, season. I guess it's called of Arrested Development. Yeah, have you? No, I've seen zero. I, I don't. I'm not in. Uh, I'm not a Netflix subscriber, so I have to wait a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, it's, you shouldn't let that necessarily stop you. Are you, um, about, are you talking about theft? Is that what you're suggesting? I, I no. I'm I would, hey, listen. Go hey, to somebody else's house. Matt Clausen. Matt Clausen. I would steal a car, would I? Would you? I you said I would steal a car. No, I said I wouldn't steal a car, would I? I think you said. I think you said. <laughs> I stole a car. I admit I stole a car. All right. So what? Just well, you heard, I heard those sirens. I've listen. I've served my time. I have. I'm. Uh, I'm back. I'm a part of society again, and I don't see the problem. 
Listen, Clausen, let me pause for a moment. It's nice to talk to you is what I want to say. I enjoy our conversations. Are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say that I enjoy our conversations. I'm I'm waiting for the but. No, I'm just saying that. Well, we don't need to talk. I don't. If you haven't seen Arrested Development, you know, I I thought I'd assumed. You know, I was just pausing to say that I enjoy our conversations. Now let's move on. With regard to Arrested Development, no. So I saw, like everybody else, I saw the. uh, You know, I've seen I've seen the, the other seasons. Yeah. And I was amused. I don't. I, I don't know that I have quite the furor about it. Um, that seems, but I acknowledge that the writing is excellent, and I, I am definitely pleased when I come across like a stray blog post that says like um, you know here's a joke you may not have caught on Arrested Development, and I enjoy I enjoy those posts because it only helps me to uh, to you know uh, have greater regard for for the writers and the actors who are involved with the project. Of course, I mean, like anything that's that's much anticipated, right? Uh, like anything that's much anticipated, this newest season of Arrested Development, I'm sure, is more like. And this is this is uh, if we want to re- uh, bring this to baseball, if we want to tie this into baseball. Joe Posnanski, of course, formulated the. Uh, he he has a theory of movie reviews, right? Which is you give a movie before you see it, based on your expectations, you give it a you give it a rating, like say yeah. one to five stars, and then. You you give a, a rating afterwards, and your uh, your idea of the movie will be based on the difference between those two numbers, not on the absolute, not on your absolute appreciation of it. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I remember Paul's talk about that. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's up. very, very um, insightful. Yeah, uh, very adept, and and I think that that's I think that maybe one of the difficulties with this new season of Arrested Development is that there is so much anticipation. Yeah, you know, I knew it would be disappointing. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out how disappointed I am. Okay. Because I, I can't, or if I should be, you know, because I knew it would be disappointing. There's no way they could live up to it. If they waited seven years, you know, because Michael Sarah had to make a million terrible movies where he played George Michael in them. Michael Sarah's playing a nice kid who stutters a lot and it's really awkward. That's That's new for him. I'm glad he's not being typecast. Clausen, you, once again, you were using irony. I have, yeah. I have installed a laugh track, I'm sure. Into this. I think I was using a quasi Norm Macdonald voice there by accident. Uh, yeah. But let's, I wasn't let's learning. Let's not besmirch the good name of Norm Macdonald. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Ouch. yeah, no, but um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I don't think that it's. I don't think it's. Why, why begrudge Michael Sarah his success? I don't begrudge him making movies. It's just. They just waited so long, and yeah, I'm but not... you, but you, so, but no, but you just, you had a a, a brief aside here about uh, Michael Sarah, a brief ironic aside, sarcastic aside about Michael well, Sarah. I didn't, I didn't, I thought I, I think I didn't mind Juno or uh, Superbad. I just thought it was interesting that his schedule got. I, from what I, I don't read all the scuttlebutt. Uh, <laughs> oh wow. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a subscription to Variety. From what I little I read, I understood that it was mostly his schedule that kept them from, you know, they wanted to make a Jurassic Development yeah. movie, yeah. And and it was mostly him because, you know, I didn't see, right. Uh, I maybe see. I didn't see maybe, you know, burning up burning up the big screen. Uh, not seen her a lot. Well, uh, Bateman, Jason Bateman made some movies. Well, right, Bateman made, some, but but from what I understood, it was mostly Sarah. And you know, Juno, he played basically. Uh, George Michael Bluth. Yeah, but, super bad. He played George Michael. Bluth. Yeah, let, I, let me submit. 
I, I actually I don't begrudge actors for having limited range. I don't. Uh, no. Young Woody Allen, I thought I loved young Woody Allen in all of Woody Allen's movies. Yeah. I like that character. In fact, the very reason we like a show like Arrested Development, for example, or like any, uh, you know, even longer, certainly longer lasting sitcom, is because we get to spend time with the characters. Right? Yeah. You become accustomed to that. And so if we just think of Michael Sarah's movies as just very long episodes in a, in the giant sitcom uh, about Michael Sarah's life or concerning it, then, I, you know, this is – what problem can we have with this? I just, I, I guess I'm not. I don't even. I'm just, I'm just ranting. Yeah, you are. You okay, know? I understand. You know, you're think, you're you, unhappy. No, I'm not unhappy. <laughs> I just, it just waited so long. Everyone looks so different, and I'm not going to name any names. It's mean, and I once said something about a particular performer, mm-hmm. uh, and then the next year, you know, jokingly about, I used the word thunder thighs and compared this particular performer to Brett Wallace, and then the summer passed, and I saw this particular performer on television, and this performer had lost a lot of weight. And I know it wasn't because this performer had seen anything I'd done, but I felt like I was promoting body image. I felt terrible. Mm-hmm. Although this performer looks great now. Um, <laughs> but there is this particular person, and maybe more than one on Arrested Development, who had a facelift. And oh. it's – That's it, a little awkward. It's not that it looks bad. It's just the person doesn't look like his or herself. Yeah. Uh, not, wait, can I, can I ask – it's not Jessica Walters, is it? No. Okay. The, because, the divine Jessica Walters. She might have, but I didn't notice it. I'm not really great with these things. If I notice it, though, it's really obvious. Yeah, but, uh, because Jessica Walters is almost – I mean she's great almost because she's old, an older-looking woman. She's she's great because she's great. She and She's actually like a real actress too, right? She's done like uh, also like, – she's had dramatic roles, I believe. Yeah, although I can't, you know, I don't, you know, I, I actually think the cast is really good in Arrested Development. It's just a little bit much. I, I don't know. People keep telling me, you know, that I knew I'd be disappointed. There's no way they could live up to patient. And honestly, th- three seasons was perfect for that show. Even though, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's the shelf life, especially. We, we may have talked about this before of live action shows, I think. Uh, not, you know what I mean? Non cartoons. Mm-hmm. Partly because the aging process and partly because there's only so much they can do. You know, there's, like, they usually take, one half to a full season to get up and running to get there to, to know where they want to go, and then the second and third seasons are great, and then yeah. they run out of ideas. But Arrested Development, I will say this: you know, maybe you can say there are some episodes that are better than others. I think it was, but in terms of being on the level, the first from the very first one, the pilot was on the same level as all the rest of it. It was great. I, I do think the third season dropped off a bit, but but you know, people are going to, you know what I mean? It wasn't like it had to find itself. Right. Yeah. And actually, I mean, so for example, um, I, I thought, uh, and I know that there are many dev- devotees of this show, which I think is like probably its fourth season or something, fifth season maybe. Um, I thought the I thought the first season of Community, uh, the show Community, was very strong. Um, and let's let's not talk about TV all day. But my yeah, point yeah. is that, uh, but but the, the one of the things that made Community strong was that um, it it went to hardly no lengths to to develop um, character. Um, in fact, certainly in Dan, Har- Dan Harmon's like earliest vision for the show, the characters were just uh, sort of playthings, um, mm-hmm. and you know he was constantly, um, you know, exploring ideas of genre uh, within them. You know, there was like a like a post-apocalyptic film or you know version yeah. of it, 
and uh, there was a you know like a claymation version, etc. Yeah. He, he would you know I mean it was almost week to week he was exploring different genres, uh, which was very exciting, especially that first season. Um, but perhaps it risked or the risk that he was taking in so doing was that you're not necessarily developing. Um, you're not necessarily developing the characters. So if you want to move on to a season two and a season three, um, you, uh, one of the, the sort of like collateral um, um, collateral disadvantages of that is that as a viewer, you don't really have a strong connection to any of the characters in particular. Right, right. I don't know if that's an accurate reading, but that, that was what I felt. I also thought I didn't like that Senior Chan uh, was sort of demoted from his – he had no more authority. A, a yep. character like that with authority is very is very entertaining, but with that with just like a you know a huddled mass is, is less so. And then Chevy Chase, che, I mean Chevy Chase is all indications point to the fact that he's just um, he's not a very pleasant person. And <laughs> yeah, and that I, that was a that was a real shock. I can't believe it didn't work out for him. Well, but but the point being that that I think that you could sense that like I think that regard I think you have to like with a sitcom I think you have to like the characters. Like even if they're like a bad guy, like Senior Chan in, in that first season of the show was sort of uh, he was a, kind of a bad guy. Uh, he yeah. was you know he ruthlessly wielded power, which is a trait that that uh, evil people have. But he was yeah. also likable at the same time. But I think that um, with a sitcom, because you're coming back week and week and you're spending quite a bit of time with these people, I think you do need to like the character. You need to at least you need to have some sense of anticipation built up when you see really all of the characters make their appearances on screen and be like, Oh, what is this character going to do? What is this character going to do? What is this character? You have to have some sense of affection for them, but when they, well, launch... you have to go ahead. Sorry. No, you go. You have to want things for them. Yeah. Right. Precisely. They're either good or bad. And you don't want it to be so unpleasant. You don't want to watch. Right. And that's actually interesting. I, I don't know if you've seen, so I, I know that, uh, are you familiar with the filmmaker Noah Baumbach? Uh, I he, probably should be. He did squid. He did squid in the whale. Um, yeah. After that, he did um, he did Squid the Whale, which was like with Jeff Daniels, um, and then it starred the uh, like the pseudo intellectual uh, younger younger man. Um, he did some films earlier, like in the uh, early '90s, that, that were entertaining. Um, most recently, I think he's done a movie called uh, well, his his not in his most recent film, his second most recent film was called Greenberg, I think, um, and uh, it starred. Uh, uh, it start it started Ben Stiller um, as a as a total misanthrope, but uh, but not a not in a pleasant way. Like he was like a like a total. No, 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 Wait, like is a that to- a pleasant misanthrope? No, but there are pleasant. Like Archie Bunker is a pleasant misanthrope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So you, it's, a, it's a misanthrope who, I mean, like and grandfathers everywhere are pleasant misanthropes, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, that movie is called Greenberg, and but he was a, he was a misanthrope, but he was also you, there was no. It was, the character almost appeared to be constructed such that he was entirely unsympathetic, and then and then there was uh, he did another movie called Francis Ha, uh, which I think has come out recently, um, and it also sounds like there are a number of char- uh, that, that maybe the title character in that um, is also not very likable uh, yeah. because she makes very poor decisions, and this is an interesting thing. It's like I, I as an experiment, um, I suppose it's exciting on that level. But in terms of like actually the aesthetics of sitting down and watching the film, I did not care to spend an hour and a half to two hours of my life with this with Greenberg character because um, he was uh, he was a dick. He was a total dick. Yep. And you know, generally, especially as you grow older, I think you make a policy. 
not to waste your time on those sorts of people. Well, but you know, I think that might be. There's a chance that could be different also for one-off films than for television shows, right? You might be willing. I mean, you might not enjoy it, but you might be willing to endure an hour and a half, two hours of that on film. But if you had to come back to it every week for half an hour, an hour, would you do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with... A, I'm juxtaposing that how that might work in a film as opposed to a television show. I guess I think if you play the if the evil is 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 sort of broadly played then yeah but right and you would not necessarily be able to have that sort of depth with a character that was appearing week to week in a in a in a sitcom yeah I, I don't necessarily know what it was about the either the Chevy Chase character or the Ken what's Ken Ken Jeong uh, yeah th- that character starting with season two. But they, well, they shoved they shoved the Ken Jeong character down. I remember this season two; they just shoved him down your throat. Like there's a few weeks where it was all about him, and it was just um, you didn't want to see it. And not anything against the actor; they just yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about with that, right? And it, well, but he but has Ken, a role. He is, he has a he has a role he can play. I mean, if you, we're to, we've, we've invoked the name of Michael Sarah, Ken yeah. Jeong, yeah, his range is not extraordinary, at least so far as what we know of him. But he's able to. Um, the, the things that he does, he does well. I think he, um, but they put him in a very like they put him in a very pathetic role uh, yeah. in season two, and it was not uh, it was not it was hard to watch because you didn't want to feel sorry for him. Uh, and but but, but well, I, I just want I really enjoyed the George Michael Michael Sarah character. It was just, it's just weird that he would go out and deliberately play that character and, and do that role a bunch, and so it kind of takes the fun out of it a little bit. That's all. To see him come back. To see him and, come back and do some of the, Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, look, if nothing will ever beat the stuttering about the dangerous cousins or uh, – well, I think he beat him, but or the stuttering about having to marry, fake marry maybe. And also, those are great moments. When right, and you never through. get to see that uh, – you never get to experience it for the first time again. Right, right. right. But, uh, and, you know, with Juno, this is an interesting thing to talk about though, right? Because the Juno character in Juno uh, – I, there's a good friend of mine uh, who, who told me that he thought, you know, you think about the film, I, you know, it was a big hit. And I, I wouldn't say I disliked it. He said part of the, the magic of the film was the 30, first 30 minutes are so grating and annoying. But after that, it, yeah, it only gets better because she is so unlikable, even though you're supposed to like her, <laughs> I guess. Uh, she's – I mean she's a teenager and I <laughs> – yeah. uh, she's – she does a great job of portraying an utterly pretentious – uh, obnoxious, know-it-all uh, teenager. But of course, what the function of the Michael Sarah character makes her more likable because he's likable and you feel sorry for him because uh, she treats him so badly. Yeah, I would say I was not as put off by the, the Ellen Page character uh, from the beginning. Um, yeah, I thought she was I thought she was slightly abrasive, but I thought maybe it was in a stylized enough way uh, yeah. that, it, that it wasn't that case. But yeah, but that point being right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think it's a strong, it's strong film because uh, everyone becomes likable by the end because you, see, you start to see their uh, their weaknesses and their strengths, I guess. And uh, yeah, dialogue. Anyway, we'll stop that. Anyway, the point is, uh, you're watching Arrested Development. You knew you're going to disappoint. You are disappointed, etc. Let's. Um, <laughs> we have two. Well, we have at least you. I got at least two points to make. I mean, we got serious conversation to have here. You did a post at uh, Knockgraphs yesterday. Yo. 
Matt Clausen, there it is. A hymn by Chesterton for the Royals. G, uh, concerning G.K. Chesterton. Um, a champion of distributism? Yeah. Distributism? Okay. And I, I, I'm a big fan of Chesterton. I, I've read, I think... Well, I haven't read all of the Father Brown stories, but I've read, I think, many of them. Most of them. Many of them? Something, somewhere I, between many and most. <laughs> um, and uh, I've tried to read Orthodoxy... Uh, yeah, it's tough. It's a little bit tough, though. Um, but he ought to yeah. be praised for his pro style, if nothing else. Yeah, you know, I'm not a great Chestertonian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't read a ton of them. I'm not a Catholic or an Anglican. Uh, I am a Christian. Sorry, everyone. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, not apologizing for that. I know some people are. Ah, whatever. I'm apologizing. No, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, 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 yeah, I just thought it was. I knew that him. Uh, from <laughs> it's gonna shock you because you know I'm such a a man of the elite. I knew yeah. it from an Iron Maiden song. I I remember from my childhood, uh-huh. uh, which <laughs> I put in there. I, I'm assuming that's more people have learned Chesterton through Iron Maiden than through uh, the Chester any ch- number of Chesterton societies. And uh, this has not been a great week for the Royals, and it's actually gotten worse as I posted that. Right. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we, um, as you are all seeing, all knowing editor, I had you put it off a day so that it coincided with Chesterton's, oh, Chesterton's birthday. birthday. I should have known you had known something about Chesterton, though. But uh, you know, he's a little bit of an anti-Semite, <laughs> which is uh, not great. His good friend is it Hilaire Belloc? Belloc? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, Belloc was also, of course, the name of. Uh, one of the Nazi sidekicks in Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. Well, let's get beyond this. Listen, Chesterton clearly obvi- clearly had <laughs> uh, flaws. Not the Temple of Doom. But but he, he, I, I would say his Father Brown stories are excellent. Yeah. The other thing I would say that he is a terrific uh, – he's a, he's a pleasant misanthrope, uh, Chesterton. Yeah, as a cur- curmudgeon even. Yeah, right, um, in, in a terrific pro style. And uh, but the, uh, the, thing I, the point I want to get to in, 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 about that post is you cited you, – you embedded – uh, you embedded expertly, Matt Clausen, <laughs> yeah, utilizing yeah. HTML. You embedded some tweets from a, a Royals fan named Rick Wilms or Rick Wilmus, something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll say Wilms for the moment. W I L M E S. In any points, he he said so. And this is uh, I would like to make it clear. Um, this this portion of of our uh, conversation is not about Rick Wilms. Okay. It's not yeah. about him, but it's it is about something. It is about a question that he invokes at some level, not necessarily with his words, or uh, I should say, not necessarily on purpose. He invokes it, but um, um, but we we see that he invokes it. He's, so he says uh, he tweeted out recently. So disappointed in the Royals, quote unquote, fans lately. Yes, we have waited forever. I get it, but come on, who needs enemies when they have fans like you? Um, he. Um, <laughs> Uh, he 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 tweeted out a number of messages along those same lines, right? Um, yeah. And I guess it, what it invoked for me, uh, Clausen, was an idea of fandom, right? Which is so what he, essentially the thing that he's arguing for. And I, and again, this is not Rick Wilms. Is they the only person who's done this before, or will do it again? Uh, he's saying uh, through through thick and through thin, right? Uh, a thick. Time and then a thin time. I don't know which one is the good or the bad. I assume thick <laughs> yeah. is good, maybe. I don't know. But um, uh, through both thick and thin, uh, we ought to support the team because this is the team we, we, we respect the uh, – as the Italians would say, we, 
uh, we respect the badge. We respect the badge. We cheer for the badge mm-hmm. or something like this. But uh, we are Royals fans, and we give, uh, if not entirely unconditional, then uh, mostly unconditional support to the team, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's that's one argument that exists. Um, <laughs> there's also there's also you could say, uh, um, and I'm reminded of a popular bumper sticker. Uh, was it like is something like dissent is American, or is something like this? Right, the practice of dissent is American, where you might say, well, I love I like the Royals a lot. I'm a Royals fan. However, uh, and because I'm a Royals fan, um, I'm I'm apt to get upset when I see that the team when the, the team is run poorly, uh, <laughs> is run po- or when mad decisions are made um, by the team. You know, in rare occasions. Right. Well, right, right. Well, but but of course, uh, I think um, you know every GM has his flaws. But I think that uh, Dayton Morris have been a little bit more conspicuous, and, and Ned Yost as a manager, perhaps some of his comments and his flaws have been made more conspicuous. Um, but I'm curious as to I'm curious as to your thoughts on on this this sort of uh, different concepts of fandom. Like if you were to devise a taxonomy, for example. But like, what, where does Rick Willems fit into something like that? I, I don't know, man. I just thought the, the guy, they were retweeted into my Twitter feed. And I thought it was hilarious and it really fit the line, the sword, the scorn divide. I do think it's interesting, uh, now that you bring it up, the, the people who, uh, while some of us, maybe me, maybe not, maybe complain about the team, get really angry, it's not us who are attacking other fans. <laughs> This You're not attacking tweet. other fans. You're not attacking right. other fans, right? No, right. Uh, well, you know, maybe sometimes, but <laughs> the, the the attacks most often on other fans come from people who are quote unquote supporting the team. You know, like in this case, maybe he's being ironic. I, I'm guessing maybe not. Uh, uh, Mr. Wilms or Wilmus? We'll, uh, we'll say, we're saying Wilms, regardless. Wilms uh, was really angry at uh, Randy uh, Jazzy Early uh, for complaining about the team and so he went on a little twitter rant and uh it's really funny i i you know uh, those of us who are complaining are complaining about the team then these fans are complaining about other fans uh i don't know it's the same thing as you know same uh, love it or leave it kind of thing mm-hmm. you know you get in politics and people complain about the you know whatever uh trying to keep it politically neutral here um the, <laughs> it's just the same thing this weird idea of loyalty uh right I don't know. I don't know what 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 their line is. I can't imagine that if somebody struck out in a crucial situation, they wouldn't. I assume fans like that get angry too, you know, or frustrated. Right, right, right. The player, whatever. So, I'm not sure in the larger schedule. I don't think that's. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe he, you know, maybe he just was pushed over the edge by one snark too many. Uh, maybe so, he know what he's getting into when he when he when he started following. Uh, Certain people on Twitter. What are the uh, different kinds of power that fans have, or or what sort of power do they lack? I mean, they can't make they can't make um, trades, for example. They can't control uh, player transactions. Uh, I think uh, very little. Uh, I don't even think attendance matters all that much directly. You think that not going to games uh, would make a difference, but I'm not sure it does uh, directly. In terms of affecting a team's money situation, uh, maybe that's unfair because, especially when you talk about some of the teams that have lower budget, they get twenty. What do they get? Twenty-five million dollars from revenue sharing, and the teams appreciate anyway. And especially if they're in the newer stadiums, I'm going to screw up some business stuff here. 
Yeah, but, you're generalizing. That's fine. I got it. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking. Uh, but I think indirect, they have maybe some indirect power. Because if there's a lot of complaining uh, and if people aren't showing up, the owners might see that. <laughs> and uh, if they care, get embarrassed, um, you know, into doing something. Uh, David Glass has a – he's actually done better the last few years. He's put definitely put more money into the team. Uh, he said some obnoxious things last offseason. But, you know, even though he said the payroll's going to be a certain amount, which freaked a lot of people out, it ended up being a lot higher than that. But he has a reputation as an absentee owner. Uh, and it seemed like, especially in the early 2000s, that he just didn't care what, how bad the team was. Um, and wouldn't put any money into it. Uh, I think Jeffrey Loria pretends he cares. It seems to put on a pretense of caring, and it's hard to tell what would be worse if he cared or didn't care. So, but, but, yeah, well, yeah, but, but, Jeffrey Loria, I think is. Well, that, that's an exception. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, look, he's, hey, you know, what, 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 I guess all I can say about him, hey, at least he's in Donald Sterling. You know, but, right. Yeah, yeah that, that's the yeah. playoffs. Right, right. So there's a lot of Sterlings around, people like Lori can get off. But, so I don't know. But I think owners don't like being embarrassed. I mean, they're not all going to be George Steinbrenner. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but the fans, I think that's the power the fans have. I mean, if you're talking about power to affect change, I mean, I don't think – I, you know, I don't know. My perception is I – you know, I have a sort of a selection bias when it comes to people I talk to about the Royals, for example. So I don't know anybody who didn't think Jeff Francoeur sucks. Mm. Uh but and well, yet can, can, we, can we be clear about this? And I, I know this is we, we have you and I have discussed it before. I, I don't think Jeff Francoeur sucks. I don't think Jeff Francoeur sucks. He's a replacement level baseball player. That's a different right. thing. Right. He's a he's a replacement level baseball player who has received probably who receives more attention or receives considerable praise it seems within the baseball community. Yeah, well, let, let me go somewhere else other than Jeff Francoeur, okay. so we don't need that. But Chris Getz is is awful, as 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 relative to uh, relative to the jet average starting second baseman. Right, and and, and, and they they continue to employ him. And they continue to use him a lot. Right. Uh, I don't know people anybody who really thinks he's good. Uh, Frank Coor is an example because I, the reason Frank Coor is an example is I think there are a lot of people who think he's good or even he's helping the team. Right, I'm told I have a hard time believing it. So I don't know. But it seems like we're all complaining that we don't want Jeff Rancourt out there and they keep – well, he's, he's sort of in a platoon with David David Lowe or I don't know, Luff or Lol as I call him. You know, this sort of quad A guy who's been in AAA for three years in a row. He's 27 and he's not very good. Um, he's hitting well, you know, the first week. But uh, so, yeah, I don't know. How much a fan complaining about a player makes a difference? I don't know. Not much. I mean, Delman. Do people, a lot of people cheer for Delman Young in Philadelphia. Uh, well, w- when you're in Philadelphia, it's, it's hard you to spread your whatever the opposite of affection is. You have to spread <laughs> it around a number of players because um, uh, I mean, uh, Ruben Amaro seems to have now made a practice of experimenting with uh, you know older players. I mean, it has a sort of strange uh, sort of. Uh, 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 bond, bond, well, Bonds era Brian Sabian uh, guide to player acquisition at this point. Although it's, I think it's, isn't it working out with Michael Young? Isn't Michael Young playing quite well? Uh, I'm pretty sure he's been awful. Are you being sarcastic? No, I, no, I was. I thought he, I thought he was hitting well at first, but now I'm uh, illicitly googling it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fan graphsing it. I'm pretty sure Michael Young's been terrible. Hey, uh, he's listed as a shortstop by fan graphs. Uh, no, so uh, Michael Young. 95 WRC plus, 95 WRC plus. That's not bad. 
And not not bad for a third baseman. Uh, zero zero point three WAR in uh, two hundred plate appearances. So you're yeah, yeah not excellent. Not a, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, it's not a, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Right, okay. He's not he's not hitting for power, so that's got to be yeah. scary. Right. Uh, and he's walking more than he's ever walked. So who knows? Maybe he's maybe he's just switched to the NL. But yeah, I don't you know I don't know what what were you thinking about fan power? Well, so I was wondering um, if the if I if if the words Marx or ideology had to do with if if they made any sense with regard to to Wilms comments because yeah, well, there's an like idea if you can uh, you, I'll give my less than elementary um uh, idea on it and then you correct me uh, for, uh, early and often um my sense is that the victory of capitalists right is when you can get the people that, you know on the consumer side to not only to to purchase or to consume the product, but you can get them to at some level develop like a a a, um, a relationship with the product. So it, it it takes on there's a there's a value to it, like a like a a moral value to it as well. Um, and it seems as though what Williams is expressing is like if you're really a, a Royals fan, then you support this team, you support the front office. But there has to be – it would also strike me that there has to be some room for dissent within that. But, yeah, there's a couple things going on there. I think there's a basic logical distinction that people who do this are to love or leave the kind of thing, whether it's for a country or for a team, uh, are, fail, are failing to make that you don't even need uh, some sort of theory of ideology to uh, account for. Uh, between I, – I think maybe I'm oversimplifying between – Wanting something for someone and criticizing for something, wanting a, a team to do well and being unhappy that they're not and criticizing them for not doing it doesn't mean you don't want them to do well. It seems like being a fan means wanting the team to win. Mm-hmm. Right. And people who are criticizing the Royals want them to still, well, still, you know, the people he's playing at Royals fans want the team to win. They're not saying, boy, I hope, sure hope the team's, team loses. Right. They're upset precisely because they're not winning. It's almost an instrumental relationship. Uh, now there is an ideology. Uh, I guess it worked there. I mean, maybe not in a strict Marxist sense. For Marx, uh, ideology is is ideas that have this. Uh, well, and, uh, and there, there's nothing on it. There's a relationship between ideology and the fetishism of commodities. I think is what you're referring to. Okay. Uh, yeah. Which is that commodities seem to take on this value uh, aside from the uh, labor that goes into them. Okay. Uh, and then, there, but the ideology is like that. These ideas seem to be free floating. Whereas for Marx, uh, they and he bounces around on how he articulates this, and that's going to be my excuse for not making me <laughs> clear about it. Uh, is that uh, uh, the somehow uh, are dependent on the relations and forces of production, uh, and but they, those that make them seem free floating uh, and thus uh, independent is, is one of the, something that happens in capitalism. What's interesting, of course, in this relationship is the, the action comes back to the conference I went to that we were going to talk about, but I got distracted talking about boring stuff about the development of Anglo American philosophy institutionally. Uh, is this nah. conference was focused on <laughs> Adorno? Um, that's my fault, people. Uh, it was the culture industry where uh, it's, it can be read uh, as a theory of a, is a Marxist, uh, critical, we'll call it critical theorist, who did work in aesthetics, but also his famous theory of the culture industry, where he talks about people absorb, you know, culture industry like, uh, mass marketing music or films or 
later television. He was writing in the 40s about this. Uh, uh, is that people get taken in, as it were, by the junk produced by mass culture. But of course, in his theory, people know that it's junk. It's not that they think it's great. It's not just this bland theory where people are fooled. Is that they're taken in by it? They buy the product, the junk, junk culture, full well knowing, culture industry, full well knowing that it's junk. Right. Uh, and so that's a a bit of the theory of ideology updated. That's not my wasn't what I focused on Adorno, so I don't want to uh, go too far with it. So it's uh it's almost an inbuilt cynicism uh, that's already in people. So being cynical isn't enough if you're still buying it. So you know I've you know, I was making fun of Big Bang Theory early. I've watched a lot of episodes of Big Bang Theory. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of part of it. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah. So, uh, in the case of, uh, so maybe that's still what's going Maybe, maybe, so maybe we fans who, uh, uh, if you want to take sports fan and really seriously, we fans like me who are critical of the Royals and know that it's a bad product, still true for Maybe we're even, maybe we're even sort of, on a deeper level, bigger dupes than Mr. Wilms because we know the product is bad and we still cheer for it. But of course, the problem with that is that assumes that sports matters and it doesn't. Um, uh, on a certain level, I mean that I sports is one of those areas where irrational attachments are okay. I think or non-rational, maybe a better way to say it. And that's why we cheer for sports teams. We want them to do well. So it's not like I'm being duped by something that matters. It's not like cheering for the Royals in itself directly has some moral or political import. It doesn't. Uh, I'm sure some people will want to argue differently, and there's probably 12 culture studies papers coming out about it right now. I, I would disagree. Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, but I but I, I don't think so. I mean, I I, I cheer for a bad team. I, I, that's just who I cheer for. It's okay. It, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. As long well, as I'm not killing I mean, somebody. an interesting thing about it is, right, that regardless of whether there was lots of money involved and money to be made from it, yeah, um, you you'd probably still cheer for the team. The question is, so if you say, well, I would cheer for the team regardless. I would cheer for the team because um, it, it, you know, either because my father cheered for it or because it represents the region, um, in, you know, in which I was born. That's why I cheer for it. I also cheer for it because it helps me, because it, uh, uh, for me and um, people I know who, who are also fans of this team, it helps us to construct. It helps us to construct a. a a um, communal identity, and I think that that makes people feel good. I think I think we're programmed at some level to have to have to participate in some sort of communal identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then we say, well, so it doesn't necessarily become bad, right? When it's capitalized upon and and it profited from. Um, I mean, it almost seems to me you can make the opposite joke. It's like, well, these uh, we have this one group. Is it the Glass family? Do they own? They, they yeah. Own the the Glass family, on the one hand, they might be profiting from the royals, but in so doing, perhaps they are necessarily uh, unable to to have the same sort of affection for the club uh, than someone who's who's not profiting from it. Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I don't think. I'm pretty sure David Glass was a fan of the Cardinals up until he bought the <laughs> bought the Royals, which is <laughs> right. pretty funny given the rivalry there. Um, and who knows? Maybe this is his long-term plan to destroy the hated Royals for the for the you know 85 series or something because he's done a hell of a job. But that's the but, case. But, but but I think that right. And so if you're making a profit, obviously you don't necessarily care. Allegiance is uh, yeah. But I, but no, I think I think teams yeah yeah I think yeah that's part of it because you have a you don't have that you know in a, you talk in certain areas of aesthetics about the uh, disinterested contemplation of the beautiful. 
you know, Kantian aesthetics into the purposiveness without purpose that characterizes the beautiful object, as I'm sure all of us are familiar with. Um, but of course, if you have a, a, a material interest in the team doing well or a economic interest, then yeah, it changes your interest in it, in, 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 in it, in it uh, the team being good or not, especially if there doesn't seem to be a connection with uh, wins and losses and your profit. Uh, take as in the case of the Cubs. Right, right, yeah, and and uh, yeah, it would necessarily complicate that. And yeah. you, you could say you could argue that um, a typical fan who enjoys the club, uh, they, even if even if on, uh, you know looking at them through one lens, we might suggest, uh, well, uh, they're essentially being tricked, um, and they're being profited off of. We might say, well, yeah, that's possible, but. You know, if if this person if this person benefits at some level from um, from his from his or her allegiance to to the royals, then that also has to be taken taken into account. Yeah, yeah, I think we've reached a, we've reached a consensus. Yeah, I feel bad. I I was going to talk about performance art. This session I saw performance art, and I was going to talk about this. Uh, 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 Antonini, if you ever seen this film from the late 60s, Antonini called Blow Up? No. As a sort of arty film there, I had saw this whole session on it. It's really interesting. It's about the relationship between photography and film and, uh, I guess our Martin Zale from the Goethe Institute, Goethe, sorry, the Goethe, uh, Goethe Universiteit there <laughs> in, uh, Frankfurt gave a really interesting presentation on, on that. Well, we can't talk about, about it. We can't talk about it because you were talking about continental philosophy. I know. I can't believe I wasted so much. This is, this is my problem. I, yeah, I, this is your so problem. much time in the introduction. I know. This is, this is my burden. It's your burden. It's my burden. It's your burden. <laughs> well, yeah, now can't it is. Edit all that stuff out. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, I could, <laughs> but I'm not going to. <laughs> Man, see, this is why I'm only on the podcast once a year because I always ruin them. Yeah, fact. That's a good point. Well, can uh, I ask can I ask a question? Yeah, this guy is pitching for the 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 it's stud prospect. He's pitching for the Cardinals tonight. He's Michael currently tossed. It's Waka. That's all Waka, I want. That's how you say it. Yeah. Is it Waka, not Washa or Washa. I believe it's Waka. Yeah, like Waka Waka. Well, what's going on with that game? Uh, you're not gonna believe this. He's no hitting the Royals, even though they just hired George Brett as their hitting coach. You, that uh, that was more irony, courtesy Matt Clausen. Pretty um, sure this is a perfect game for him through four. Looks a lot like a perfect game. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The um, uh, I think the thing with the Waka is that um, so he had a lot of um, he had a lot of strikeouts in spring training. Um, yep. Which actually is does generally mean something. Um, with strikeout rate from spring does training. It? Yeah, it does. Um, I don't remember that. What's that? I don't remember that. Is this thing going to be a thing like the slugging thing where? No, no. This yeah. is yeah, but no, but everyone thinks different. it's true. Yeah, I, you're talking about slugging your ISO. That this takes hundreds of, of plate appearances to become reliable. A strikeout rate becomes reliable rather quickly. But it's yeah. still spring training, where you're facing the likes of, you know. Yeah, but everybody's facing them. The guy three. Listen, it's not a perfect off. correlation, my friend. But if you look at the leaders every year, if you look at the yeah. strikeout leaders, yeah, every year from spring training, these are generally. Not yeah. definitely, but they are generally the strikeout. For example, do you know who was one of the leaders in strikeout percentage, or at least regressed strikeout percentage for spring training? Jeremy Guthrie. Uh, maybe it was. But Rick Porcello. Rick Porcello. 
Yeah, well, and? And he's been one of the best strikeout pitchers the last month. Well, you know, and, uh, well, I was actually kind of got talked into Rudy for so I didn't draft him into my fantasy leagues, thank goodness. But, uh, but you know, but we'll think about walking. So is that more or less important than his kind of crappy strikeout rate in AAA this year? Wait, Rick Porcello? Who are you talking about? Not sure. back on Waka. Not back on Waka. Oh, Waka. Waka, yeah. Right. So that's the thing. Waka at uh, AAA is not, he's not been particularly dominant. I, I, he might throw a heavy fastball or something. But no, I mean, you know, I think in that case. I thought, I, think, no, I, thought his, I thought his fastball thing with his fastball is he worked high in the zone. Because he works high in the zone, but he's also got a curve and a change. And you're not going to believe this. Probably the first time they've ever said this about a young pitcher. He needs to work on a secondary stuff. Work on a secondary stuff. Well, regardless of what's Bar- I mean, I, I, people are going to have a hard time believing that. Maybe, maybe what happened, if we can theorize, maybe what happened is he went to AAA to work on his secondary stuff. And that's why yeah. his numbers are not as impressive there. Uh, the, Cardinals are un- the Cardinals are unorthodox that way. We could speculate. We could speculate. Anyway, Clausen, you're going to have to – I'm going to uh, – let me tell you about my plans. Tomorrow morning, um, yeah. my, my wife and we rent a car. Uh, we will be driving to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, where I will be uh, – I'll be working uh, – I'll be at uh, Wrigley Field tomorrow. I think uh, I have plans to re- record a podcast with Nick Pecoro, who I believe you've met. Sorry, you kind of date the guy from uh, the D-backs guy? Yeah. Great. We're going to record a podcast. I'm gonna, we're going to have lunch at Wrigley Field in the press box. It's going to be called Lunch Lunch with Nick Pecoro at Wrigley Field. There's no way it's going to compete with this awesome podcast. Um, I can't believe I went on and on about analytic and continental philosophy about it. But say hi, say hi to him for me. He has no idea who I am, but, but do say hi to him for me. Yeah, I will. Do you want to uh, do you want to help me with the introduction? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Sir Balper, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Testuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is a, is now I believe could be considered a longtime contributor to Fangraphs. He's also um, a, a perpetually a, a PhD candidate. At a college at, uh, somewhere in Canada that's not very far from Toronto, but is also not Toronto. His name is Matt Clausen, and he's helping me with the introduction. You're there, Matt? Yes, I am. Hi, Carson. Hi, hi, Matt Clausen. We uh, we just had a, quite a long conversation. Um, we we covered some important things, and then also you wasted uh, maybe upwards of ten minutes on uh, discussing the distinction between analytical and continental philosophy. Is that true? Indeed. Uh, and uh, any uh, any recollection of what else we discussed? Uh, we talked about. The disappointment in the new Russian development, but it we was talk- a disappointment you you knew was knew was yeah yeah. And try to I try to gauge whether the disappointment met my expectations. I I knew the show wouldn't meet my hopes for it, but whether the disappointment in the show <laughs> was greater or lesser than my expectations. Okay. Uh, we didn't talk about that conference that you were interested in because we talked about aesthetics before, maybe a little bit. Uh, we talked about uh, the distinction of analytic and continental philosophy for some reason. That's my fault. We talked about sexy book titles. Oh, yeah, we did talk about it. That was right at the beginning. So people listening right now, that, that's basically the first thing they're going to hear. We also talked about um, – uh, We talk, I, I, I invoked the name Marx. I just said Marx aloud, and I said, does that, does that apply to fandom and all? Yeah, we talked about Rick Wilmus and Chesterton. Right, okay. Uh, there it is. So this is uh, – this, what this is is an introduction. Uh, what's about to uh, – what's about what, – what, what listeners, people listening to my voice right now, what you're about to hear is my conversation that I've just completed – in my present with Matt Clausen as uh, sirens go by again, my dangerous, dangerous neighborhood. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's an episode of Fangraphs Audio. It features um, longtime Fangraphs contributor Matt Clausen. And it begins right now. Woo! <laughs> we did it. Oh, oh, man, I'm sorry. 
No, we you got to take a firm hand with me. I know. It's tough. I really want to do want to talk about the conference. I think you would have found it interesting. It was hot as hell. What, what, what it, town were you in? It was Kalamazoo, Michigan. You ever been there? Yeah. In fact, my wife uh, spent uh, her first year of college in Kalamazoo. At Kalamazoo College? At K College, yeah. Yeah, so that's like super snotty, right? Uh, it's like Oberlin or Swarthmore. It's trying to be. Well, maybe it is. I don't think it's so. Try- I mean, it's not cheap. They're like two things. It's beautiful. But yeah, they, student undergrad kind of ran the conference uh, in a way. They didn't, they didn't like – like my advisor. It's part of the reason I went. My advisor was there. and They like had this class where they used one of his books as their text, and they like interviewed him for the video, and, like really good questions and – Claus, uh, wait, um, let me let me put it. Let's, I, we're still recording. Let's stop. Oh, the we, we we are. Yeah, let's stop oh, the man. podcast. I'm oh, sorry, I take that off the podcast. I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to say uh, I'm going to I'm going to thank you for joining me on on this edition of Fangraphsaria. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. All right, that's Matt Claus, and I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphsaria. We're <laughs> we're really about to have a conversation.